Morning. Glad to be here in, in chapel this morning. Um, I do have a confession to make. Um, I'm afraid I overdressed for chapel. <laughs> um, actually, I was supposed to be in court this afternoon um, for a hearing that sounds like it's going to be continued, and I really don't want this being more formal um, than it needs to be with our, our time together this morning, because I'd much rather it be um, somewhat conversational, and I really don't think I need this either. And so, and I don't plan to put it on cl for my class at 11, so for those of you in criminal law, we won't be having a tie today. You know, I, I do wear a number uh, of different hats, um, and sometimes I wonder which hat I've got on at any given time. I absolutely enjoy teaching in our criminal justice program, and in, in the ninth year of doing that, um, I spend quite a bit of time most afternoons with my, my legal practice and serving people in that way, trying to provide legal counsel from a Christian perspective, and I really enjoy that as well. Um, I also, as Jose mentioned, preach full-time for the, for the Church of Christ here in town, and that's maybe the, the one hat that I wear that I feel the least qualified um, to do. I mean, I've got some educational background for doing my teaching, and I had to pass the bar to be able to, uh, to practice law in the state of Kansas. Um, I've done no graduate work in biblical studies um, I've got a bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in Bible, if that holds any water. And very often, and, and you know, especially in this context, um, when we've got all of you that are here learning about different things, and I've got members of the ministry and theology faculty that know a whole lot more about these things than I do, I do get a little bit uh, intimidated about this environment. I don't know why that is. Um, for the weeks leaning up to this, um, I think Jose and I first had a conversation back in August, so I've known that this day was coming for some time, and I can speak just about anywhere, about just about anything, and I really don't get nervous about it, except for speaking in chapel. So hopefully, as we go along here, um, I will loosen up a little bit, and I really just want to have a, a conversation with you this morning, um, coming directly from Scripture. Um, I, like I said, I, I preach every Sunday, and, and my typical preaching style is, is, is mostly exegetical. I mean, we'll take a passage of Scripture... I usually read fairly lengthy passages of Scripture because I want to get the, the entire context, and then we just, we just feed on it, um, and we dig into it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take a fairly significant portion of Scripture from uh, John's Gospel in John chapter 4 and, and look at a conversation that Jesus has uh, with a, a Samaritan woman. And, and so we're going to read through uh, first, uh, John 4, 1 through 30, and then 39 to 42, just to kind of get the story. And then what I'd like for us to do with just a few minutes here this morning is just kind of unpack it a little bit, um, provide maybe some details that I have found um, in my preparations for, for these thoughts, and then hopefully leave you with a, a couple of, of takeaways um, to take with you this morning as we head into the rest of our day. Uh, I, I know this semester in chapel you've been speaking or hearing lots of information and messages about discipleship and about discipling and the importance of, of discipling. And so I was kind of thinking about that. Um, and I've been preaching this year through the Gospel of John. And as I stumbled across this story a, a few weeks ago, it really hit me. This is a, a pretty amazing example. And I think kind of a unique example uh, of a, the excitement of an unexpected disciple. 
And I think we're, we'll talk more about this, this woman at the well that Jesus has a, a conversation with. But let's, let's go ahead and begin this morning by just diving into the text in John chapter 4. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And then drop down a few verses to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed, stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves, we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. 
So let's, let's just try to unpack this a little bit. I think the first thing that we have to recognize here is kind of where we are at geographically in, in the story here. Um, Jesus has been in chapter 3 um, in Judea, the area around Jerusalem, but he's heading north of Jerusalem uh, to the, the region of Galilee, but unfortunately for his travel plans, um, Samaria lies right between Judea and Galilee, so he has to um, figure out some way to get to Galilee. And it's interesting here, in the text, John writes, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Well, one of the things that I like to do occasionally is look at um, the Greek um, for some of the words that seem to be um, important here, and I usually give this caveat. I, I have had two years of Greek many, many, many years ago, and I know just enough Greek to be dangerous. But thankfully, Dr. Milhouse has helped me a little bit this morning, and so hopefully I'm not going to do any harm with uh, looking at a couple of Greek words this morning. But I thought it was interesting that John records in verse 4, he, referring to Jesus, had to go through Samaria on the way. He didn't have to. And, and really, most Jews would not be going through Samaria on the way to Galilee. They would head out of Jerusalem, go down from Jerusalem, head over towards Jericho near the Jordan River, go up kind of the west side of the Jordan River until they got past Samaria, and then they would cut back over into Galilee and complete their journey. So a more circuitous route and, and more miles to walk, but they dared not go through Samaria. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But John uses a peculiar Greek word when he says he had to go through Samaria on the way. The word actually means it was necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Why was it necessary? It wasn't the typical route that most Jews would have taken, but for Jesus that day it was necessary, and I believe it's because Jesus knew that it was necessary for this Samaritan woman that he travel through Samaria. So not taking the customary route. Why was this not the customary route that most Jews would have taken? Well, let's uh, go back in time a ways. I want to go back to 2 Kings chapter 17. You know, one of the things that continually amazes me about the scripture that we have and what has been preserved for us is this entire work is one story. It all fits together perfectly and seamlessly, and it's amazing to see how all the pieces fit and so as I was contemplating, you know, this whole issue about the Jews and the Samaritans, we have to go back to 2 Kings chapter 17 uh, and look at verse 5. So here we have the, the nation um, of Israel for many generations has been divided into. We have the, the southern kingdom, which was primarily the tribe of, of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and then we had the other 10 northern tribes that were originally part of the 12 tribes uh, that make up the northern kingdom. And very often, they were just referred to as Israel. And so here we have Israel succumbing to the Assyrians. And this is, we go into a lot of the history, but primarily because they had forsaken God and had been worshiping um, idols despite the Lord's specific and repeated warning. So in verse 5 of 2 Kings 17, then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. Finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, Samaria fell and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. There they were settled in the colonies of Hala along the banks of the Haber River in Gozen and in the cities of the Medes. And then drop down to verse 24. 
The king of Assyria transported groups of people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and resettled them in the towns of Samaria, replacing the people of Israel. This was a practice of, of the Assyrians. They would, they would kind of clean house in an area that they had conquered, and then they would bring others um, to inhabit that land, and that's exactly what happened in this situation. But they ran into a slight problem. Uh, continuing, uh, let's see, uh, verse 25. But since these foreign settlers did not worship the Lord... When they first arrived, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So a message was sent to the king of Assyria. The people you have sent to live in the towns of Samaria do not know the religious customs of the God of the land. He has sent lions among them to destroy them because they have not worshipped him correctly. The king of Assyria then commanded, send one of the exiled priests back to Samaria. Let him live there and teach the new residents the religious customs of the God of the land. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria returned to Bethel and taught the new residents how to worship the Lord. But these various groups of foreigners also continued to worship their own gods. In town after town where they lived, they placed their idols at the pagan shrines of the people of, that the people of Samaria had built. For those from Babylon worshipped idols with their god, and, and they're all worshipping their own gods. Verse 32, these new residents worshipped the Lord, but they also appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests to offer sacrifices at their places of worship. And though they worshiped the Lord, they continued to worship their own gods according to their uh, religious customs and the nations from which they came. So this is the interesting situation that's going on in Samaria at that time. You've got some worship of Yahweh. You have some worship of the God uh, of the Israelites, but it's mixed in with all this pagan worship that is going on. And that really continued for, for quite some time. The, the monotheism of, of Judaism eventually won the day, and most of the pagan worship went away. Um, but we still have those influences um, on the people living there. And consequently, because of that, that difference there, um, the, the Jews uh, of Judea really had nothing to do with the Samaritans. The, the Samaritans had um, really no use for Old Testament scripture except for the Pentateuch, the first five books. Um, that's where they relied on for their guidance. And that makes sense. You know, the rest of it is all about, um, all about the Israelites, all about Judea and the importance of, of the, the line of Israel and the coming of the Messiah through there. Um, they rejected most of that. They chose to worship um, here in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. Um, it had some Old Testament significance as well in, in Genesis. That's where they chose to worship. But I think most importantly, um, they were viewed by the Jews of, of Judea as not full-blooded Israelites. They were half-breeds. They had intermarried and intermixed with the other people, so they were no longer purely Jews. And that's the, kind of the history of the animosity between the two groups as we, as we have it in our setting here. And so Jesus chooses, and John says, it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. And that's exactly what Jesus does. So along the way, he comes to this village of, of Sychar. It's about lunchtime. They, they need something to eat. The disciples go into town to find something to eat. And Jesus is there by himself at a well with nothing to draw water. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And the sun is hot. 
So we already talked about some of the animosity there between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, the, some of the religious and political and cultural uh, conflict that was there, but our plot is going to thicken this morning um, because while Jesus is waiting at this well for the disciples to return, he encounters a woman. Now, the significance of that is uh, we, would, we would probably miss in our culture because it's, it's no big deal for men and women to converse in public during Jesus' time. That did not happen. And especially a single man would never visit with a woman in public. It was just not acceptable. But not only does, does Jesus ask a question, he actually engages in an entire conversation with this woman. And the interesting thing about conversations for, for John and his gospel, and there's a number of these that, that John records for us, he uses these conversations to kind of put out a, a, a kind of a, an earthly um, thought there, an earthly line of reasoning, and trying to elevate his audience to a, a heavenly way of thinking. And we see him doing that with this woman here. He begins this conversation by asking a question. And I was thinking some about John's audience, um, those that would be reading this gospel that John has written, you know, many years after the events took place, and they, they already know kind of the, the rest of the story. They know where this is going, and I can't help but think, you know, they were maybe thinking about a couple of questions to themselves, you know, as they're going through the story. Would this woman realize or recognize Jesus for who he is? And, you know, Jesus, you know, uh, extends this offer to, to ask about water. Would, 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 she, would she accept his offer? Would she be inclined to ask for a drink? And well, it's pretty clear at first, she doesn't realize what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about water drawn from that well. He's talking about this notion of, of living water, and, and she doesn't understand that. You know, Jesus says in verse 10, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And she's thinking to herself, how could this guy know anything about a water source that I don't know about? You know, I live in this very dry and arid region. I know every water source that is around. She's familiar with all the water sources and there's no living water around here. Living water had a specific connotation. You know, when she hears Jesus say living water, she's thinking um, a spring or, or a river, water that is, that is moving. That was what she was thinking about living water. You know, how could Jesus, how could this Jew you know, know of another water source? Well, she's stumbling over that metaphor, right? She doesn't get what Jesus is talking about yet. And it made me think of an Old Testament reference to living water in Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. That's the water that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about this living water that comes from God, that is the source of life, that is nourished by God, but she doesn't yet get the metaphor. So Jesus explains it to her a little bit more in verse 13. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. 
there's that, there's that, that feeling of living water, right? There's this fresh, bubbling spring that brings eternal life. It seems at this point that, that the woman at the well almost has an, an aha moment. You know, look back at, at verse 10. Jesus has said, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And so here we have in verse 15, the woman says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Well, Jesus is about to get really personal with this woman at the well. She, she's starting to gain a little bit of an idea of what Jesus is talking about, but she's about to get personal. Jesus is about to get very personal with his next statement here. I think it's important for us to remember when all this is going on. This is happening at about noontime. Why in a very hot and dry land would a woman choose to go get the water that she needs for her household in the hot part of the day, in the heat of the day at noontime? We're about to find out why she came at noon, why she wanted to go when no one else would be there. You know, she was surprised to see Jesus there um, when she arrived there. You know, she typically would go to the well at this time of the day and would not meet anybody, and that was by design. So Jesus says to her, go and get your husband. Well, she doesn't have one. And, and she answers, she says, I don't have a husband. Well, in, in this culture, divorce was not near as common as what we experience today, um, it was not near as socially accepted, and from a religious standpoint, it was very unacceptable. Women at this day and time could not get a divorce. They could not ask for a divorce. Now, they could approach the authorities and request someone to try to persuade their husband to release them, but they could not ask for a divorce. It would have been very odd in this time for a, a woman to have been married two or three times. But here, this woman has been married five times and is currently living with the man that's not her husband. So Jesus has gotten very personal with this woman. And so it's pretty clear. I think that makes her pretty uncomfortable. She's uncomfortable with his line of questioning, and so she tries to change the subject. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist on Jerusalem is the only place to worship, and we Samaritans, we worship up here on, on Mount Gerizim? Can, can we just change the subject a little bit? Let's talk about something else. And Jesus, you know, I think she unwittingly opens the door here for exactly where Jesus wanted to go. She references uh, this notion of a prophet. She said, sir, you must be a prophet. And I got to thinking, you know, what was she thinking about, you know, this notion of the prophet? Who was this prophet that the Samaritans were looking for? And it's the same prophet that many of the Jews were looking for. And it goes back to something that Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where we read, Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So not only were the Jews looking for the Messiah at this time, the Samaritans were as well based on this passage in Deuteronomy from the Pentateuch, which they accepted. So she thinks, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe he is a prophet. Clearly, he knows things about her that he ought not to know. 
but maybe he is the prophet. Her mind is starting to turn in those tracks. And so Jesus has this discussion with her about worship and how things are changing, and it's not necessarily the location that matters, but the fact that you worship God in spirit and in truth. It's about that inseparable concept of spirit and truth within you know, how we worship. Now we have this amazing response Verse 25, the woman said, I, the mo- I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. That same phrase that we see throughout the Old Testament, I am, that is a sign of Jesus' divinity, his oneness with the Father. And Jesus claims to be that one that she's looking for. So it seems like their, their conversation is coming to a crescendo, and, and things are going really well, and then the disciples show back up. This is a very uncomfortable situation for her. She uh, is here in the heat of the day talking to a stranger, a man out in public, and he happens to be a Jew. Very uncomfortable for her, and clearly uncomfortable for the disciples as well. They're all thinking it, but nobody's going to say it. What is he doing talking to this person? But she leaves. Um, She leaves so quickly in such haste, um, she leaves her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. The only reason that she came to the well was to draw water. She leaves without taking her water jar with her. She runs back into town and is telling everyone along the way, come and see, she says. A man told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Now, the people that she's telling, they, they know a lot about everything she's ever done. And how could someone know those things and tell her clearly their curiosity was up and they start streaming out of the village to see Jesus? And when they come out, to, come out to see Jesus, they encounter him for themselves. They hear the things that he has to say. They're able to persuade Jesus to remain in Samaria for two days. And many more believe because they heard from Jesus. Now we believe not because of what you told us, but because we have heard for him ourselves. We know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So, so that's the story that um, I had hoped to share with you this morning. And thinking about that in the context of discipleship, a couple of ideas um, seem to come to, to my mind, and I can't get past this notion um, from verse 4 where John writes, Jesus had to go through Samaria. It was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. I think that tells us so much about the nature of our Savior. I was thinking about Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Luke writes, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. It's necessary for Jesus to pursue us and to find us because of our lost condition. He desires that for us. It's necessary for him to do that. I think it's important for us to realize Jesus knows. Jesus knows us, right? He knows me inside and out. He knows me better than I know myself. You know, if there's anyone here that's hesitant about coming to Jesus because of the things that they know about themselves, guess what? He already knows. He already knows all of those deepest, darkest secrets 
Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus came for us. He, he has come to rescue us from our sins, from that condition, to seek us and to save us. But I think the, the part that excites me about this story is the excitement of this woman. You know, the very last thing that she expected to encounter that morning was Jesus at the well, and the very last thing she expected to do would be running back into town telling everybody that she encountered about this Jewish man that she had met that was probably the Messiah. That was not on her schedule for today. But we see in other places in, in John's gospel already, in, in chapter 1, you know, as Jesus was calling his first disciples, that was very often a response. Somebody would encounter Jesus, and their next response was, i got to go tell somebody. C come and see. Andrew went to look for his brother Simon to tell him. Philip goes to find Nathaniel. Come and see for yourself. I think a true disciple of Jesus is going to have absolute, you know, contagious excitement that you just can't keep contained. I confess I don't think that that's me most of the time. Unfortunately, somehow I'm able to contain that excitement and I don't let it out as I should. As we look at this passage, I, I pray that God will send us that excitement that we need, that that good news that we have, that we will not keep that contained. We won't keep it to ourselves. We'll find ourselves in a position where we can't do anything else but to share that. Let's pray as we close this morning. Dear God, I thank you so very much for the time that we've had this morning to share in your word, to hear um, the message that you have preserved for us through the, the pen of John. Father, we thank you for the words. We thank you for the story of this Samaritan woman and the encounter that your son had with her. Father, we thank you for her excitement and for her example that she has left for us um, to follow. We just pray, Father, that you will help us to release that excitement in our lives, Father, that we may um, not be able to contain the excitement um, because of what you've done for us. Dear God, bless us as we leave this place this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.